you can grab one. We're going to be in Galatians chapter 1 this morning. I invite you to open your Bible and turn there with me. Galatians chapter 1. Galatians 1, be reading from verse 10 through verse 17. I can't remember what I asked to be put in the bulletin. I may have suggested I was going further than that, but we're just going to get through verse 17 this morning. Galatians chapter 1, beginning in verse 10. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would now steer all of our attention to your word, that you would remove distractions from us, or rather we'd bring them to you. Father, we pray that this portion of your word would benefit each one of us this morning. To the praise of your name, amen. Amen. I receive uh, emails probably about once a week or maybe every other week um, from someone who says to me, uh, beloved pastor, or something along those lines, your service has not gone without recognition, and in the wake of the loss of my Husband, he has left an inheritance for you to the sum of $240 million. And if you will simply send me your social security number and transfer some funds into my bank account to get things started, I will gladly distribute this to you as soon as possible. For some reason, I don't find it to be legitimate, and so I delete it immediately, but maybe I've just out $240 million. Do you get messages like those? And... You read them, and hopefully you immediately delete them. We get messages all the time, and we have to be able to discern what's right and what's wrong, what's true and what's false. And some are just so outlandishly elaborate and preposterous that you just immediately delete them. Not to be too trivial with it, but God does not want us to delete the gospel message. It is outlandishly good. It is so good that it, in a sense, rubs against our human nature because it all depends on grace. And so mankind is prone to delete it and come up with something that we like better. 
We don't want to do that with the gospel message, and God doesn't want us to do that in, with the gospel message. In the text of Galatians, we see Paul begin a rather lengthy section that goes from where I read until about chapter 2, maybe verse 14 or so, where he begins to lay out a defense for the message that he preached. He's laboring through reason and testimony as to why the message that he preached is legitimate, why you shouldn't just immediately delete it, why the Galatians shouldn't discard it for something else. And I'll take this morning a little time to build up some thoughts before we dive into the text. I want to lay some groundwork before we dive in, because we want to understand why this is so important to us, to understand why the message that Paul preached is legitimate to us. Verse 10 kind of kicks off this section. He says, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God, or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. This sets up for us the understanding of what's going to come. Paul is countering some people who are accusing Paul of being a people pleaser, of which Paul clearly is not. If you look at the verses just before, Paul is pronouncing curses on anyone who preaches another gospel. If you are willing to pronounce curses on people, chances are you are not much of a people pleaser. And so Paul just discards that argument right out of the way and is suggesting to the Galatians that he is a servant of Christ. He's a slave of Christ, and he wants to please God. This kicks off this section in which the overall purpose is, according to one commentator, quote, to assure the Galatians that they have indeed received the true gospel. The Galatians received this gospel from Paul, and so to have confidence in the gospel, they must also have confidence in the messenger who proclaimed the gospel to them, end quote. Paul is giving them reasons for confidence in the very gospel that he preached to them. Usually when we come to a, a portion of scripture like this where it recounts a personal testimony of someone, you do something called principalize the text. You take the text and you kind of almost strip it away of its historical details and you boil it down into the abiding, enduring principle of the text. For example, the book of Jonah. Uh, Jonah runs away from God and gets swallowed by a fish. Now, chances are, if you run away from God, you're not going to get swallowed by a fish. And so, in a sense, you kind of boil down the historical details into the enduring principles that will apply to people of the 21st generation, namely, do what God says and trust that he has mercy and God will chase you down, something along those lines. You boil it down. In this case, I don't intend to do that primarily. In this case, we don't want to boil down principles because I think they are already, in a sense, boiled down for us, even though they are historical details. You need to accept that this portion of Scripture is the testimony of a unique man in the history of the world. This is the testimony of the Apostle Paul, who is entrusted with a message the gospel message to bring to the Gentiles. And you cannot kind of take away the, the, 
the principles of this and abstract them to us in the 21st century because each one of us in this room depends on the historical accuracy of what Paul says. We depend on the fact that there was a man named Paul who really preached this message by revelation. And so I don't want you to try to, in a sense, transfer to this 21st century. I want you to understand that the gospel that you have received in the 21st century is the same gospel message that Paul preached 21 centuries ago. That's what I want you to know. Jesus said in John 16, 12, as he's preparing to go to the cross and he's with his disciples, he says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Jesus himself indicates, though he taught his disciples prolifically, he did not say all there was to be said. There was more that was going to come. And I think a fulfillment of that is the fact that Jesus appointed Paul to preach the gospel with greater insight and clarity and explanation than perhaps you just read in the four gospels. I used to think, as I was a, just a new believer, all I really needed were the four gospels. I needed Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That has Jesus, and Jesus is everything I need. In a sense, that's True, and you can't really argue with that, but the fact is God inspired more Scripture than Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He summoned the Apostle Paul to be a light to the Gentiles, to bring the gospel message to the Gentiles with an explanation of what happened in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And that explanation is just as authoritative as the account of Christ in the Gospels dying and rising again. And so we are very much indebted to the fact that Paul has recounted for us an explanation of what the cross and resurrection means to us as Gentiles or as those who receive the gospel in the 21st century. We need the 13 epistles of Paul. A large portion of the book of Galatians is devoted to defending the gospel preached by Paul. A major portion of this letter is devoted to defending the gospel preached by Paul. All of that is important. You can't strip away Paul from this. You can't just say that it's defending the gospel. It is defending the gospel, but not only. And you can't strip away the gospel. You can't say it's just defending Paul. What it's defending is Paul preaching the gospel. They go together. One theologian writes, After the resurrection of Jesus, no single event affected the course of the church's history so much as did the call of Paul. Other individuals were converted. Constantine even baptized an empire. But the change which occurred for Paul caused reverberations, many of which are still sounding in the church. End quote. This is because... God Paul called Paul, as it says in verse 16, to preach Christ among the Gentiles. If you just think for a moment, your common understanding of the gospel is indebted to the writings of Paul. If you've ever heard, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that's Paul. If you've ever heard, the wages of sin is death, that's Paul. 
Or the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's Paul. If you have ever heard, by grace you have been saved, not of works, so that no one may boast, that's Paul. It's explanations of the cross of Christ. It is so important to us to understand the explanation of the cross as clarified by Paul in his epistles. The main thing, the main verse in this passage that I read to you is verse 11. Paul writes, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. That's really the main point. It's what you need to know. That the gospel Paul preached is not man's gospel. He goes on to say, For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the main point. We are called to know that the gospel we we received through Paul's writings is not man's gospel. This is crucial. John Stott says, quote, If Paul was right in asserting that his gospel was not man's but God's, then to reject Paul is to reject God. End quote. In other words, you can't just take Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and forget about Romans through Philemon, or the rest of the New Testament for that matter, but I'm not making that argument this morning. But I ask, is this corroborated elsewhere? If you reject Paul, you're rejecting God. That's a big statement. That requires some backing up. Well, listen to what Jesus said. As Jesus sent out the twelve... In Matthew 10, 40, he says, quote, Whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. Jesus, when he was sending out the 72, said in Luke chapter 10, verse 16, The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. After washing his disciples' feet, Jesus says in John 13, 20, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. And after his resurrection, Jesus says to his disciples in John 20, 21, Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. So I don't think it's too much to say that if you reject Paul, you reject the one who sent him. And if you reject the one who sent him, you reject the one who sent him. And if you reject the one who sent him, then there's no one else to reject because you're all out of heaven, pretty much. There is an important truth here. Paul preached not man's gospel, but God's gospel. And if you reject that, you're rejecting the one who sent him. You're effectively rejecting God. Certainly this letter is taking place in a very real historical setting. The churches of Galatia were the churches that Paul planted in Acts 13 and 14. Uh, It's the southern part of Turkey, modern-day Turkey, and Paul went there to these cities and preached the gospel there, and many came to faith and churches were planted. But after Paul left, there were these 
troublers who came into the churches and began to preach another gospel. Not only were they preaching another gospel, but they seemed to be attacking Paul. They seemed to be indicating that Paul was getting it wrong. And so Paul needs to respond to the Galatians and let them know, as a matter of fact, Paul's troublers are getting it wrong, not Paul. But this could very quickly descend into one of those kids' arguments where a kid says, yes, I did, and the other says, no, I didn't, and the other says, yes, I did, no, I didn't, yes, I did, no, I didn't. You need arguments that have reasoning to them. And so Paul doesn't just say they're wrong. He goes on to give reasons why Paul is right. You need legitimate reasons. And so we're going to look at these for a few moments. Well, there's a couple of things I want you to know. The first is know that the gospel is not a human message. This is really Paul's first argument about the credibility that he brings before the Galatians. Know that the gospel is not a human message. Again, verse 11, Paul says, I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. There are a lot of things you need to know in this world. Uh, You need to know the speed limit if you don't want to get a ticket. You need to know what food um, is still good in the back of your refrigerator. You don't want to eat something that's spoiled. A lot of things that are important just to your well-being to know what's poison and what's not. Paul here wants the Galatians to know something. He's working and laboring to make something known. I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that Paul preached is not man's gospel. It is not man's gospel, but that's not all that Paul's saying. He says that you need to know it's not man's gospel. Do you know that? Do you know that the gospel preached by Paul is not man's gospel? You need to know it because other people are going to come to you with other messages that are going to sound persuasive, that are going to sound good to your tickled ears, And you're going to have to decide, is that the real gospel or not? You need to know. Your life depends on it. You need to know what gospel is not from man because there is no other gospel that can save you. That's what Paul said in verses 6 through 9. There is no other gospel that can save you. There's only one gospel. Every other gospel is defunct and bankrupt and has no power to save your soul. If you want to get to heaven, only the gospel from heaven can save you. If you want to remain in the flesh, then let flesh and blood bring a gospel of flesh and blood. You need to know a gospel that is not man's gospel. The reason that Paul says it's not man's gospel that he preached is because, verse 12, He did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul is saying that no one took Paul, set him down, explained the gospel to him, and Paul said, yes, teach me more. Paul says that he did not receive it from any man. The reason he didn't receive it from any man is because he received it straight from Jesus Christ. I received it through a revelation of Jesus 
Christ. That's a big claim. Again, Paul is making big claims here. That's a claim I can't make. I can't say that the gospel I received, I was not taught by man. There were people who taught me the gospel. My parents taught me the gospel. Uh, My teachers in college taught me the gospel. Pastors have taught me the gospel. Professors have taught me the gospel. Any gospel I know has been taught to me. Paul doesn't say that. He said he received it through a revelation. If I ever go around saying, or you hear somebody else saying that they received the gospel through a revelation, warning signs should go off. Sirens should begin to wail. And you should begin to be very concerned about the person who is speaking to you. So Paul makes this claim. It's a big claim. When he says it's a revelation, he does mean just that. It is a direct reveal from God to him about certain truths. In Romans 16.25, Paul says, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages. Revelation is a word that means to reveal, to make something that was hidden now known. In Paul's case, it is to let him know about the gospel that he preaches to the Gentiles. And just a quick side note, this in no way means that Paul had not heard about Jesus before. They hadn't heard about Jesus' death and resurrection before. If you recall, Paul was a persecutor of the church. He knew what was going on. He knew what they were teaching. He knew that they were teaching that there was a, a Jewish man who had died on a Roman cross, and they were claiming that he rose again and was the Jewish Messiah. Paul knew those things. So the revelation that he's talking about is something different from that. Particularly, it is how the gospel is to go to the Gentiles. Particularly, it is the gospel of grace, the message of the meaning of the cross, which is founded on the grace of God being given to sinful people, even people who think they're righteous in their own eyes. That's the gospel that Paul is preaching, and that was revealed to him. So Paul is saying that the gospel that he preaches is not a human gospel. It's the message he received from direct revelation from the Lord Jesus Christ. You can consider some other examples where God distinguishes a particular person for a particular role in his plan. Think about Moses and the Exodus. Remember, Moses was just out there in the wilderness when he sees that burning bush and he goes over to see what it was and he finds out that it is God revealing himself in that burning bush to Moses and telling Moses that he is going to go and be the deliverer of his people out of Egypt? That would be a surprise. And God goes on to say, or Moses rather, says to God, Behold, They will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. Moses believes God is speaking to him, maybe even believes what God is calling him to do, but thinks that the people aren't going to believe this. And the Lord says in Exodus 4, verse 2, what is that in your hand? Moses said, a staff, and he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground and became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put your hand 
put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. God was giving Moses proof and verification that God had appeared to him and that he was, in fact, the deliverer that was going to lead the people out of Egypt. Remember Joshua. As Joshua is going to now lead the people who've been delivered out of Egypt into the promised land. It's a big role. There's millions of people. And there needs to be some verification that this is the guy. And as they prepare to cross the Jordan, the Lord is going to verify that Joshua is the guy. And so he stops the Jordan River so that the people can cross over on dry land. And in Joshua 3, 7, the Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. There's a precedent here where God in some way puts his stamp on a man who is going to have a significant role in the ministry God is accomplishing on the earth. Paul happens to be one of those men. And so we'd expect that there's a particular stamp that would reveal that God gave a revelation to him that he is going to preach to the world. And so not only do you need to know that the gospel Paul preaches is not a human message, but you also need to know that the gospel that has come to you is, sorry, you need to know the proof that the gospel that has come to you is not a human message. And that's where the rest of our text leaves us. Proof that the gospel that has come to you is not a human message. Now, this gets a little bit into the realm of defending the faith. How do we know what we know? How do we have certainty that the gospel message we've received is real and legitimate? There's a lot of lines of arguments that you can go down that in order to dig in and have certainty that what you know and what you believe is true. I'm not going to go down a lot of rabbit trails. I just want to go where this text leads us. Let's see what the arguments are that are given here for how we know that the message that Paul preached is true and that Paul was the man that God had chosen to bring the message of the gospel to the Gentiles. This gets broken down basically into Paul's testimony. The proof is in Paul's life. It tells us about before he knew Christ, his coming to Christ, then after he came to Christ. Before his conversion, his conversion and what happened after his conversion. Some of this goes on beyond the portion that we're reading today, but we'll get into those in future weeks. Let's look first before his conversion. Verse 13. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. The beginning of that verse begins with a short word, for, or because. It explains the reason how his former life is proof in some sense that the message he received is a revelation from God. And I think the gist of this is that his former life is so inconsistent with the message that he preached that the only real explanation for it is a revelation that was given to him. Personally, for those who know it well, we enjoy the 
the testimony of Paul in the book of Acts. It takes up uh, chapter 9 in the book of Acts, and it's a highlight of the book. We love it. We love to see this former persecutor be brought over to the side of Christ. So delightful. It's an amazing display of the work of God, and it's amazing because we know what his life was like beforehand. His former manner of life, Paul describes here, he was a persecutor of the church. He persecuted the church of God violently. Paul's life was known to the Galatians. He says in verse 13, you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism. They know what it was life. His life was soaked in the traditions of Judaism, not just the Ten Commandments, but all of the traditions that rose up after that, the traditions of the Pharisees about laws of uh, cleansing and what you do on the Sabbath. All of those things were just the life that Paul had absorbed. But the first thing that Paul mentions was that he was a persecutor. That's the thing that he wants us to know most of all. In Acts chapter 8, that's where we first meet Paul. And you meet this man who's standing there, basically collecting the cloaks of the men who were hurling stones at Stephen to kill him. And Paul looked on with approval. That's where we first meet Paul. Then Acts chapter 9, verse 1 through 2 says, But Saul, that's the other name for Paul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Paul wasn't a guy you wanted to get in his way. He was a driven man. And he was convinced that the Christians were preaching something false. He was convinced that they were preaching a false Messiah. And as such, they were heretics and blasphemers against God. And so Paul, with all of his self-righteousness stirred up, went with full zeal to go do what he thought was right in the sight of God, namely to go and wrap Christians in chains, to get rid of them, and even to have them executed. Paul says in Philippians 3.6, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. You wouldn't meet a man more zealous than Paul before he came to Christ. And he thought he was all doing it in the name of God. He sought to destroy that wicked thing, the new church founded on Jesus Christ. He wanted it gone. The word is literally annihilate. That's what he wanted to do, just annihilate it. And it seems like, left to himself, he wouldn't rest until he was dead. For verification of this, his life was known to others. He says in verse 14, And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. He was the top of the class. He was the valedictorian. He soaked in all of the teaching and he was the one who would stay up late and get up early and practice all the devotions, all the prayers, everything. He'd memorize everything. He would do whatever it took to be devoted to God in his mind. He was zealous for this. He was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. He became famous around Jerusalem. So zealous was he for the traditions of his fathers. 
He's just one of those unflinching, unswerving individuals who would not relent. He was going to go to his grave persecuting the church, following his traditions. That's the way he was going. It's a one-direction train. Notice how he's been speaking in verses 13 and 14. He says, My former life, I persecuted. I tried to destroy it. I was advancing beyond many of my own age, my people. So zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. It's all about Paul. All about what he did, what he wanted, what he was like. All about him. And then there's this amazing transition in verse 15. It says, but when he who had set me apart before I was born and called me by his grace. The whole language changes. No longer it's Paul's actions, but somebody else has entered into the drama of Paul's life. Something amazing happens here. It's one of those amazing texts of but God. It's the intervention of heaven into an unrepentant sinner. It's an amazing intervention. And Paul notes this. And remember, he is noting this as proof for the legitimacy of the gospel that he preaches. Because Paul, left to himself, was heading one direction and one direction only. And then something happens. Acts 9 happens. There's a light. There's a voice. The voice says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul's response, who are you, Lord? And the response is, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And in a moment, everything changes. This direct revelation from heaven to Paul changes the whole course of this man's life and really the whole course of history. Paul seems to think the only explanation for the turnaround in his life is this Sovereign choice of God on his life. He says, but when he who had set me apart before I was born. That's the first thing he says that changes everything about his life. Was it has to be something so stupendous, so amazing, that God chose me before I was born, before I had done anything, because there's no other explanation for this. I was set on my track. I was set on my course. I was going one direction. There's only one reason that anything changes in my life, and it's because God chose this before I was even born. That's the only explanation. God had designs on his life from before the time he was only, before he was even born. He was set apart. God had designs on his life. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace. That was the other thing that must have stood out to Paul in that moment of revelation of Jesus Christ to him. Not just that Jesus is alive, not just that God must have set Paul apart from before he was born, but also that this whole thing is just swimming in grace. Called me 
by his grace. Paul had made it his ambition to destroy the church of God, the church that uphold Jesus Christ as Messiah. And then all of a sudden, this same Jesus that he's persecuting is speaking to Paul. And it's obvious that Jesus is a lot more powerful than Paul. And so if Jesus wanted to, he could just look at him with that little glint in his eye and Paul would go poof. That's all it would take. Jesus had, or Paul had been seeking the destruction of Jesus' people. And Jesus now has them in his light. They just squash them. And had every reason to. But instead, this same Jesus takes the sins of Paul and forgives him of everything that he had done against him and calls him to be an apostle of the same Christ that he had been persecuting. And the description that Paul gives to this event is being called in grace because there's no other explanation for it. How else else do you explain it? Could Paul say, well, Jesus saw what a good guy I was and thought that I would make a good tool in his tool belt? Clearly not. Everybody would know this guy was not the right guy for the job. And that's the whole point. Because the only explanation that the world can accept for why Paul now follows Christ is because Jesus Christ personally appeared to him and called him to do this job of apostleship. And so as Paul now gives this defense of the gospel, it's all set up in this fact that Paul was a wretched sinner, a chief of sinners, saved by the grace of God, administered to him by a revelation of Jesus Christ to him. And that's the only explanation for why Paul does what he does. His life before Christ and how he came to know Christ. Just a brief aside. Do you take any credit for your salvation? Or are you as willing as Paul is to be amazed that God would choose you? Do you know your own heart well enough that you marvel that you trust Christ, the one who you formerly had rejected? Or do you say, you know, it's pretty consistent with who I am that I follow Christ? That's a dangerous spot to be in because the credit goes to you for by grace you have been saved, not of works. In fact, just a few pages over in your Bible, Ephesians chapter 1, Paul says in 1 verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And it explains how that came to us even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world.
Do you take credit for your salvation? Or are you aware enough of your own heart to realize that unless God's grace came into your life, you would have no part of him? Paul was summoned to this role of apostle in verse 16 in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. It says that God was pleased to reveal Christ to Paul at the beginning of verse 16. It pleased God. God wasn't begrudging about it. He delighted to do so. And he did so in order that I might preach Christ among the Gentiles. That's the commissioning Paul got. This is effectively why we have the gospel that we do. Because God gave Paul this revelation to go out and preach the gospel to the nations. We're among the nations. The gospel has gone out to the ends of the earth, a lot of them, not every nook and cranny. But the reason that you believe is because the gospel that Paul preached has been passed down and continues to be preached. But your gospel message that you've received is only legitimate insofar as it agrees with the gospel that Paul preached. And that's why there has to be so much verification that the gospel that Paul preached is a divine message. Paul very quickly in verse 17 adds, or end of verse 16, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. This will begin a section that we'll pick up more on in the next couple of weeks. But after Paul came to Christ, he didn't need to go and check things out with others. He had been given the gospel message by Jesus Christ himself. And so Paul is giving now a chronology of his life after Christ, and it begins right after his conversion that he didn't go to Jerusalem where the other apostles were. He didn't consult with anyone. He went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. He spent that time away from those who would instruct him in the gospel and was able just to be saturated with what Jesus himself had given him. Paul has a lot more to say about this, and we'll dig into it, but I just want to leave you with this. You are so influenced by the gospel that Paul preached. I'm so influenced by it. I can't live a day without the gospel that Paul preached. It's everywhere in my life. It's Romans 5.8. But God shows his love for us and that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. It's 1 Corinthians 2.2. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's 2 Corinthians 12.9. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. It's Galatians 6.14. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. 
It's Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. It's Philippians 1, 21. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's Colossians 1, 28. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. It's 1 Thessalonians 1.10, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. It's 2 Thessalonians 1.10, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. 1 Timothy 6.12, fight the good fight of faith. 2 Timothy 4.2, preach the word, Titus 2.13, waiting for our blessed hope and flying Lehman 1.25, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. We're so dependent on this. We need to know it's legitimate. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the good message of the gospel that has come to us. Thank you that not only do we have the verification through the testimony of Paul, but we've also tasted of the goodness of the gospel that he preached. And so we thank you, Lord. You know, when Jesus asked his disciples, will you also go away? Peter said, Lord, to whom else shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Father, we read these words in your scripture. We can't go anywhere else. They are from you. We thank you that you've made them so plain, so real, so practical. practical. Help us to abide in them. Lord, if any among us are are struggling with, with doubts or just going after things of the world, I pray, Father, that you would draw them back to your precious word the precious gospel, you would encourage them that they might know in their hearts the truth of the gospel, the truth of your gospel, not man's gospel. Father, bless us this week that we might walk with you in a way pleasing to you, abiding in Christ. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.